people. You sometimes have to quit that job that is giving you a safety and like they're waiting to make it so that they can quit a job. And I talked to my boss and I told him like, how did you open a restaurant? How one day I opened my own restaurant? And he told me something I did not understand, but now I so fully understand it. He said, Neiman, you'll know when you're ready. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro, where we talk about how to get ready to live a more purposeful and empowered life. This week, we're going to talk directly about the theme of this podcast, Are You Ready? And more specifically, how to know when you're ready. Ready for what? Well, it could be anything. Are you ready to get out of bed? Are you ready to go for a run? Are you ready to start your own business? Are you ready to move on? From an unhealthy relationship. We also talk with Nemanja Golobovic, owner of the wildly successful and super popular restaurant, Kale My Name, about this very question. How we came to the United States without any real plan, not a lot of money or a support group, but got a job on his first day here. How he worked as a server, then general manager of restaurants for five years before deciding to open his own restaurant at the age of 30. Only three years later, Kale My Name is one of the most successful and acclaimed plant-based eateries in the country. I asked what inspired him to take such a gamble, and his answer was simple. I was ready. Which begs the question... Well, how did you know you were ready? So, without further ado, let's get into it. Have you ever done a podcast before? I have done the podcast before. Okay, and uh, what was that like? I actually enjoyed it because it was a really good conversation and I forgot that it was a podcast actually. Oh, wow. I'm just chilling with a friend. That's actually really cool. Pretty amazing. So I want to start with a very easy question. Can you actually tell us how to correctly pronounce your name? I think I could be able to pull that (laughs) It would be Nemanja Golubovic. Nemanja Golubovic. Your one of the better oh i feel so proud pronounce that really close to what it sounded like when i said it so i will say i had been calling you neiman for so long and then when i added your name to my contacts i always like to add the exact legal name to my contacts and so i added your name and i was like oh it must be nemanja so i was calling you nemanja for a very long time and then I had the pleasure of sharing an entire plane ride with your husband. Mm-hmm. And I noticed he was calling you something totally different to the point where I had no idea what he was saying. I was like, who is he talking about? Uh-huh. And, and then I realized it was you. And then I discovered I'd been saying your name wrong for so long. And and then I asked you about it and you said that people call you all sorts of different things. Isn't it crazy that I did not even correct you? No. I'm just so used to it of people mispronouncing my name that there is a moment that I have mispronounced. <laughs> there was so many times, Nemanja, Nemanha, Nemanji, Jumanji. 
I got all sort of things, but I also had people calling me Montenegro, which is the country I'm from, and they were just associate that, like, they don't know any other people from there. So we'd be like, hey, Montenegro, and I'd be like, oh, that's me. So I'm so used to it, and then how I got a nickname, Neiman, because it was easier for people to pronounce. So I really don't mind. You can call me whatever you want. I know some people are very sensitive. And I really respect that. I'm always going to give my best to pronounce your name properly, right? But to me, it just doesn't matter. Mm. It's so not usual for people in this part of the world to hear my name. So it's absolutely okay. You, you can call me Neiman. Actually, in this point, it's been eight years. I kind of like it. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Adopt it as your own. Lean into it. It's almost like a little fancy, right? I can be fancy. Yes, I, I definitely know you can be. So you say that it's not normal here. And by here, we mean like the United States. Correct. Is it a very common name where you're from? It is. There was very popular historical personality in my part of the world named Nemanja. And I think it's particularly my generation. I was born in 89. Like I know so many Nemanjas that are exact my age. I don't know many older Nemanjas than me. Uh, and I don't know if I know any younger Nemanjas. Like, it was very popular around. So I would say that every Nemanja that there is, it's in their 30s. <laughs> so, so. Just in case you need to know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you happen to meet another person named Nemanja, you can also guess their age. <laughs> I assume that they are in their 30s. That's correct. <laughs> so the first time that I met you was at your restaurant, Kill My Name, in Chicago. And I distinctly remember that you introduced to us a particular dip, which I can't even remember the name of. What is it called? It was called Ivar. Ivar. Is that right? That's correct. And uh, that was actually how I even learned about this country, Montenegro, which is where you're from, where you were born. Maybe tell us a little bit about Montenegro. How is it different from where we are sitting here today in SoCal? Montenegro, it's a really gorgeous country. It got the name because there's a lot of mountains over there. So Monte means the mountain, right? Negro means black. So it, it's actually in my language called Cernagora, which technically means black mountain, right? They just try to find more international name that can be acceptable and people can pronounce it all around the world. It is really beautiful. It is so small. We are populated a uh, little bit over half million people. Oh, wow. So that means that my entire country has about people as as many people as one neighborhood in Chicago. Wow. Right? Wow. So people very often tell me I've never met a person from Montenegro. And I say, well, you're not that many. So <laughs> like, if you run at one of us, that's great because it's just really small. But it's gorgeous. We do have this beautiful coast, beaches that we actually share with Italy. We are we we call it Jadransko More, Italian called Mare Adriatico. Uh, in English, it's Adriatic Sea, I believe. So there's a lot of different names for for that sea. But it is absolutely gorgeous. It is so safe to swim at, which is so amazing. We learn how to swim the second we learn how to walk. We also learn how to ski. The second we learn how the mountains. to stand up, yeah, <laughs> because we get, especially I'm from north of Montenegro, which is like very cold, mountainy place. So like the second you can stand up, like your parents would put you on the skis and go. <laughs> so yeah, it's just so gorgeous. But the, I, I love it, but I was looking forward to abandoning it. Mm, well, we'll talk about abandoning this gorgeous <laughs> seaside town. <laughs> yes. Before we do that, maybe tell me a little bit about your family and what it was like growing up in what sounds like paradise. 
it is a lot of fun. I do have a mom and dad that they've been married over 35 years. And my dad is so insanely in love with my mom to this date that we are all so annoyed. Like, and the older he gets, the 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 more teenager he is. And it's so in love with her. That it's just so beautiful to watch. And I really enjoyed it. But I was always thinking how I'm never going to find somebody. Because whoever I meet, I want to be in love with me as much as my dad is in love with my mom. My mom loves my dad too. But she's not as expressive as my father is. When my mom gets sick, my father asks God to take him instead of her. So it's like so adorable. So I was thinking, I want this Uh, for my life. And we are three boys. I'm a middle child. I have an older and a younger brother. And I feel like the dad had a lot of impact on my life. Like, I think I am a fighter. I think I am, let me go get this myself because I feel the older child, like he's the oldest, he's the first, he's so loved and spoiled. The youngest one, oh, poor little guy, we're not gonna make him do a work or he was just so spoiled and like two older brothers just could love on him so much. I don't have a picture from my childhood unless I'm inside of the picture where my older brother is. Mm. And then I told that my mom the other day and she sent me a picture of myself and I said, but she only took picture on her phone on the part that I am in. And I said, mom, I know that picture by heart. My older brother is on the other side and that's the only reason you have that picture of me. So I felt being a middle child really took a big step in my life and created who I am as a personality because I always had to fight for myself. I always had to do everything myself. No one gave me things because, oh, he's the oldest. Oh, poor guy, he's the youngest. Like, I was just in the middle, mm -hmm. right? So I think that that created a lot of who I am today, but having brothers was growing up with them was just extraordinary for me. And we were just, we would fight a lot, but we were so there for each other. And that just meant a lot to me. And I just wouldn't have it any other way. And can you think of a time growing up where either your younger brother or older brother was there for you in a way that's memorable or that you can sort of still feel today? Huh. I, I absolutely can remember many things As a, especially for my older brother, because like I was kind of weak child, you know, I was very girly, wanted to play with a Barbie, so I was bullied for that a lot. So my my older brother would bully me for that too, <laughs> but he would not allow anybody else to do it, right? Like he was trying to explain to me, like, oh, you have to be a man, like, or he would like defend yourself and things like that. But when somebody else would try to hurt me because of those things because as, as beautiful as Montenegro is it's really close-minded so boy playing with a, a Barbies it's not something you can see often so I would get threats from other kids that they're gonna beat me up and things like that and I'm just so grateful that I had him but also cousins we are very male family my my Mom's brother had also two boys and some other family members, it's like all having boys. So my cousins and my brothers were there for me to technically defend me because I'm thinking like, what would happen to me if I did not have that type of protection? Because like, it's really rough as a kid. I could really, I, I was beaten up, but like then they would jump on or or things like that to to protect me because it was it was very common that, And the, the 
the one thing about me is like, I knew I'm endangering myself, but I did not want to give my Barbie away. Mm -hmm. So, so that's a little weird perspective. So I don't know what psychology would say about that. And I'm sometimes thinking about it. I ended up giving it, but not because of the, I was afraid that I'm going to get hurt because of my mom. I felt like she's being hurt by, by my Barbie. And that's the day when I decided to give it away. But yes, brothers were there for me. And your cousins were there for And you. my cousins. Yeah. So I want to pick this apart a little bit. When did you start playing with Barbie dolls? Oh, I think since the moment I knew that there are toys. I just really was, I had no interest in the cars, in the guns. And well, I, in such a, so many male cousins and brothers, we had so many toys that there are cars, that there are guns. We play ratatatata with each other, which was very common. So I would enjoy that because it's fun and I wanted to be part of the fun, but I just really wanted to. There were times that I would convince my brothers to play with the Barbies and those are the happiest times for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, but they would do it for a while and then just would not be interested for them anymore. But I just really wanted my Barbies to have a name. I wanted to brush their hair. I wanted like to change the clothes. I do love my parents for that because as much as they hated it and that's wrong that they were trying to force me apart from from it they were still allowing me to play my mom would take a time to explain me that I shouldn't be doing it but when I say yeah mom but I really want my doll that I named Ivana or something mm-hmm. like that to 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 play in a, in a game then she would still let me have it they would not they would buy me those toys. Oh, so I want to, yeah, tell me about a time where you're, yeah, yeah. did your parents literally take you to the store and you got to pick out your own Barbies? Exactly, and then my mom would try to tell me that that's not the best toy for me because I'm a boy, but when I would insist, my mom would end up buying it. And how old were you at this time? Well, I think that started from maybe being three, four, till by the time I'm maybe seven or eight. I, I think that's my first memory of me deciding to give up the uh, mm-hmm. the Barbies because I knew that my mom cried about it. And uh, why do you think that your mom was crying about it? Because they took me to, to see a psychologist who recommended my parents that I should be spending more time with my dad and that I should be doing more manly jobs, such as cutting the wood. Like, you know, we would have those we would put a fire, we would need wood, so we needed to cut him on the pieces and I think and I hurt myself and like I was bleeding and I was like, this is so not for me. And this is at like six, seven years old? Literally, yes. Because the doctors, the people with the the titles told yeah. my parents that I should be doing those. And things. that there was something wrong with you because you're absolutely they're like, he'll be fine. Like basically we just this is a cure. Oh. Right. So that's what I trying to do. And then like my mom was just really crying about it. And I heard from my room, we lived in a very small apartment and I knew. And I just walked out and told my mom, hey, mom, like, I just really don't like my dolls anymore. Can we give it to the a girl neighbor that we have? And I think she would love them so much. And I gave them away and I was dying inside of me at that point. But I just knew that this would make my mom happy and that she'll not cry about it. And that was the day that I remember that I gave up my, my girly toys. Did you cry? I did not because I had to be brave for my mom. Uh, yeah. uh, was she happy? I think so. She may or may not knew that I'm doing that for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think so. 
because later on, I don't know, it's just like there's always something that somebody is going to say that it's girly activity. I wanted to go to the dance classes. I wanted to play piano. I wanted to go to folklore. I wait, just to be wait, let's theater. stop here. Playing piano. <laughs> I'm, t- it's, I'm telling you, we are very close minded country. Okay. So, like, you could have a beer. Drinking coffee is not manly in where I'm wow. from. Like, my father literally told me that, like, coffee is for women to cater around that talk bad about other people. My goodness. Like, that literally, that's what coffee serves for. And I believed that till I was 30. I had my first coffee when I was 30 years old. So you said earlier that at a certain point, you didn't care that people were physically hurting you Mm -hmm. because you wanted to play with Barbies. You said, I would just, I was not going to give it up. That was part of my personality. But when you saw that it was hurting your mother, you essentially sacrificed something that brought you a lot of joy and comfort and probably was the beginning of exploring your identity and who you were. I'm assuming that later on in your life, that other aspect of your character, which is I am who I am and I'm not going to give it up. Even if people physically hurt me, did that make a reappearance? Yes, with the rest of the world. But for the 20 years later, I was protecting my mom from the pain that I told I will cause her if I come out as a gay person when I figure it out that that's who I am. And I literally had a really good conversation with a person who is also gay and he came out so early to his parents and he said that he thinks he's brave and I'm weak and covered. And I said, I'm sorry, but I think I am being brave because I'm sacrificing so much for myself and going through all of this horrible agony and a pain on my own because I don't want to, I want to protect the people that I love from, from pain. I, was, I always knew, oh, I'll just go somewhere and I can tell them and, like, I can provide for myself. Like, I, it's not that I needed them so I was scared to tell them because I'm going to lose them. I was scared to tell them to not hurt them. So I really think not coming out, it's not about not being brave. It could, it could actually mean being brave enough to do it on your own so that you can protect the, the ones that you love, at least I thought I was prote- I was protecting them because where we are, I understand so many people will disagree with me, but they did not live my life. They don't know where I'm coming from and they don't know that this was something that your parents will feel hurt, not just because they don't love you. They like, of course, I'll tell you that my parents are so supportive right now, but it took us to get to that point. And it's not because... They didn't love me, but because they were also scared for, for, for my safety, for what others might do to me. It's just so, we are scared of unknown. Well, it's understandable given that you were targeted and bullied at such a young age mm. for just playing with Barbie dolls. Certainly as new parents or even veteran parents might be frightened for their child. And then without the tools available that, to them to understand this impact it would have on you to have to try and hide yourself. Mm-hmm. Maybe the instinct is, oh, well, can you just give up your Barbies? Give up, give up playing with dolls. It's not normal, especially when a doctor is telling them that it's not normal. Yeah. So at what point, you know, later, whether it was a teenager or even younger, did you decide, okay, I'm going to keep things from my mom and my dad, but I'm going to continue doing things that maybe 
the, the kids at school or even my own brothers and cousins would not approve of. I always knew that as as the young kid, as I said, I knew this is like literally jeopardizing my safety, but I'm not I, I, I will take the risk because I'm standing up for for who I am. I just I was not thinking I'm hurting anybody with with doing it. So that's why I felt like I don't need to hide this. The only reason I did it for my parents is just because I'm thinking like I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to see my mom cry. It's the worst thing that the child can experience seeing their own mother crying because of them. Mm-hmm. So uh, with the rest of the world, I just I just knew that's that's what I wanted. And what did that look like? I mean, did you date other well, boys or uh, yeah. oh, it took me so long to <laughs> accept the the fact that's the whole we would need a whole new podcast <laughs> for me to tell you about the my process of accepting because first I also believe that something could be wrong with me right so it did take a lot for me to be like oh well this is who I am and if you have a problem with that I just don't want you in my life at all and I also did not want to have I I had so much fake support in that because I had a girlfriend who would be like so super supportive because it's fun. Oh, my my best friend is gay. It's so cool. But then there were question, there was questionable their brothers or something like that, that might potentially be a gay. And then my friend freaked out and like cried about it. It was a huge drama for her. Mm -hmm. So I said, your support for me was fake this entire time. And I was just a toy to you because I felt like that so many times from like fake support. Oh, I'm so cool with that. But if it's in their family, then they're not cool. So you're their trophy gay literally, best friend. Literally, a toy. Mm-hmm. That's what I that's what I felt to be. And that's how I was just removing myself from people like that. And if I see that they're not okay with their brother, father, whoever being a gay person, then they're not okay with me being that. They're just lying because they want my friendship. And I was just removing myself from situation like, like that. And I... It took a lot of cleanups of the, the surroundings and a lot, a lot of countries that I've changed to, to find who I am today. But it worked out. And I did various friends that I have from literally 25, 30 years since I was a child. I still have a couple of them, very few, two, three. And I have other 30. You know how many friends we have at school, 30, 40, 50. But they're just no longer my friends. And I don't think they'll ever be. So that's okay. So you have people who are physically assaulting you because of your behavior. You have your brother and your brothers and your cousins telling you that you need to be more manly, play with manly toys, defend yourself when people are bullying you. Your parents are emotionally, visibly emotionally distressed when you act out on very natural impulses for a child and, you know, presumably growing up and Around you, you're surrounded by people who are closet homophobes and essentially are using you as their trophy gay BFF. And all the way on top of that, you are struggling with trying to figure out, is there something wrong with me? Why am I causing the people I love so much pain? Can you think of then the moment, was there a moment in that whole journey where you decided, no? There's nothing wrong with me. There's something very wrong with everyone around me, mm-hmm. but it's not me. That's not a moment, I have to tell you. There's no moment like that. There's back and forth, right? Like I'm at 80% that like there's nothing wrong with me and this is something, but there's that voice inside that tells me, oh my God, it is wrong. And then just step by step and then meeting other people, right? I was 
I was horrified to meet other gay person. Why? I don't know. I was thinking, oh my God, they're going to know. Or, or something like that. It just really, really, really scared me. So then when I went, I don't know, to Spain, to Madrid, I did not want to enter to the gay bar because person told me, oh, this is gay bar. We should go in. I was like, no, I'm so scared to come in. It's horrifying. Like I just needed time. So if you want for a moment, I don't have it because that's a whole process of years to finally reach to that point where like, oh, I, I this is great. I think maybe first falling in love was the moment when you feel like, okay, this feels so right and this feels so beautiful and you cannot convince me that this feeling that I'm having towards this person is wrong. And maybe that's what it took for me to fully accept it because before I was questioning it like, oh, is this like a, just a sexual attraction? It's so weird. It's, it's like maybe it could be wrong. But then when I felt it in my heart, and I was like, this is what loves feel like. And it's so beautiful. And like no one on earth can tell me that the feeling I'm feeling right now, it's wrong because it's one of the best. And I think maybe that could be if we kind of want to put a, moment on it when I realized I'm in love but also you don't realize that overnight right you also when you fell in love it takes least I don't know a month or two to be like I just don't want to live without this person anymore so that could be it when but that took me time I think like I was already in my 20s like I really I acted late on my gayness okay I was not practicing it so um well you didn't have safety to practice exactly it. exactly so i would yeah some of the people from united states when i told them oh i had my first kiss when i was 21 years old they're like what <laughs> like we were we were 15 and i was like oh my god 15 i did not know what that was when i was 15 like i was like i don't know playing with my fake gun because it was given to me and that that's what i was doing when i was 15 so it took me a while, but I again say I think it was worth it. Well, I have to pause a little bit and talk about your first love. There's this concept in pop Korean culture and Korean dramas called chutsarang, which literally translates into your first love. It is a very tremendously important turning point in Korean drama lore and all of the Korean drama tropes. And I think part of that is because there is some revelation that occurs when you allow yourself to be that vulnerable to another human being. Can you walk us through what was that first love? Who, who was it? How did you meet him? And, and what did you learn about yourself through that? I was a theater kid. I was obsessed with theater. And I think again, would be considered uh, uh, not such of a huge interest for straight people, right? That turned out to work for me because that's where I met my other gay friends, right? And with one of them, I just become really close. And we were just both so scared to tell each other that I knew, he knew, but there's no way. Like, who's going to say it? Who's going to pronounce it first? Am I like risking to lose forever a friend if I say like oh I'm this way and like what if they what if I'm wrong what if me wanting him to to be gay is what making me blind and I don't see that maybe he's not so it was really scary and eventually I don't know we I think like my little first kiss with 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 the person was in a game 
Mm-hmm. Like it was like spin the bottle kind of literally thing. Literally something like that, and it was so wild. And then I think we were so close that like we were sharing the room. It wasn't a trip, and like one of the we traveled as a theater so we were staying in a hotel and we were sharing a room and then we would always like lay down in one bed and talk and i think i initiated conversation i told you i was brave so i said (laughs) hey wow well that's what we did was wild right like i didn't hate it right because like you're supposed to hate the kiss with a man right that's why in a game you're doing it because oh you're being disgusting right so I said, like, I, I didn't hate it. And then he said, well, I, I was not that at all. And I said, well, do you want to do it again? And he said, sure. And that's how it happened. Oh, I'm going to start to cry. <laughs> and then, you know what? The next day when we woke up, we just wanted to be with another people. So we don't have to mention it. <laughs> Because we were both so terrified out of the conversation. So the second we woke up, where's my toothbrush? Let's brush it in. Let's go down for a breakfast because there's people. So we knew that in front of other people, this is not going to be a conversation. So we wanted to be around other people because we were so scared. And then we kept doing it, but never talking about it, right? It took months before we like, well, so this thing that's been going on, <laughs> like, is this like a relationship or something like that? And we're just really scary. And But we actually uh, officially said to each other, okay, we are in a relationship. Nobody knew for probably a year. Like, that's literally my first love. And it took probably two, three, maybe even four years because like our last four years was like me more leaving towards the other countries and like being not possible to keep as much as in touch as we would hope. Because when you're so young, you'd be like, oh, forever be together. But then that started like drifting us apart. But we, we, I don't think we told anybody within like a year or two. Maybe that's why it works so well. <laughs> but just me and him knew and nobody else in the world and then we told maybe one of our girlfriends first and you know she cried and was like this is so amazing and like supported us and it felt great but oh my god there's such a horrible part of that story that I don't know if I even want to tell you but he, well you have to tell us <laughs> well, his, his mom actually ended up cutting us in oh. a, in a, like she found the text messages that like she told they were extremely weird he said like oh uh hey like my love or something like that sent it to me i mm-hmm. dropped i maybe dropped like a money on our bed can you look like if we have five euros there because like we wanted to go do something with mm-hmm. that and then his mom found that messages and then like started like accusing him on all type of things and he said well mom that's how Nemanja just talks to me like that's like he just didn't know what to say so like he blamed it on me so his mom was like well you can no longer be hanging out with him so oh my god I think that made us in love even more because like she was just really trying to fell it apart then we were had to hiding that we are even friends mm-hmm. because like she was not allowing like even our friendship so ah oh, it's just a really long story but let me tell you i don't know now much about this person it's been probably 12 13 years since that was happening but i have heard that he has a girlfriend really yeah I'm not sure if this is the correct information that I'm providing you right now. But yeah, I think he still lives somewhere in the Balkans. So 
he might still be struggling with who he is. Mm. And I'm sorry, and I wish I could be there and be like, hey, it is okay, and give a hug, but I'm we're just not in that place that I can be there for him anymore. We don't have a contact at all. It's not like that we split it on a bad terms or anything, but it was just the life. And uh, we just don't have contact. It was not time of Instagram and Facebook that we could just like, oh, we are Instagram and Facebook friends. We're not. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't, I don't think, I didn't even look him up, I promise. So it would just be very weird. But some of my friends from there was like, oh, guess what? Guess who has a girlfriend? And I'm like, oh, wow. Well, I don't know. It, it could be that he found that, like, I just don't know. But it could be that he's still struggling because he's there. I just really don't know. And I don't want to think about it because it can make me really sad. And I I want to be happy, Joanne. No, I know. I I know. Yeah, you do. And I think that having that sample, sample is maybe a bad word, but that taste of something so beautiful and pure at that time in your life, I think it seems that it taught you, as you said, to believe that who I am cannot be wrong if it leads to something this perfect. Mm -hmm. And wherever he is in life and however he ended up, that won't ever change. That's history. That's factual. You mentioned that you had gone to Spain at some point Mm -hmm. in your younger life. And I wanted to transition to talking about what role traveling has had in your life. I know you've talked about traveling to me and how much that means to you. And at a certain point, you were even a flight attendant for Qatar Airlines, yes, just so that you could travel. At what point did you start looking out beyond this paradise home of yours? Well, I knew when I finished high school, I wanted higher education. I'm just very excited about it. There is no much about in my country where I am at of the things that I wanted to do because I wanted to do something artistic, right? I wanted like the school of the arts and it was in in Madrid and Spain and this was a private school. So it was not, the money was the, the issue, right? So my older brother got a car for his 18th birthday, right? So I was like, I demand things, okay? So I said to my parents, like, because if this is what you're gonna do for all three of us, I want on my 18th birthday, instead of car, I want to have paid first year in, you know, of school in Madrid and Spain. And I'm going to study there. I'm going to first study the language. And then after you pass the exam that you speak Spanish properly to take this school, that is what I'm going to do. And my father was so proud of me that I'm choosing education over car. So he said that that's perfect, and they paid this very expensive school for me, and I was so grateful. And you know what? What? I didn't like it. <laughs> Why didn't you like it? I was 18 years old. I'm from the village, Joanne. Our city is so small that I'm suddenly 18 years old and leaving myself in this giant 4 million people city, and I'm so lost and scared and miss my parents, miss my friends, miss my family. And I was thinking, this is not what I wanted. This is not what I imagined it would be. And then I needed to say to my parents, like, oh, this is something that we made mistake and we spent all of this money that we cannot get back. And I thought it was a horrible to do. But luckily, 
my dad said, okay, if you're not happy, let's do this. But the next time you want to go somewhere, you're just going to have to make it happen on your own. Mm -hmm. And I did. Then I get a scholarship to go to Norway. Then I completed that. I get a scholarship to go to Mexico. My parents never financed my education after that. But also, when my younger brother came to be 18, we were not in a position to buy him a car. So we that was so uh, painful for me because my older brother get a car, I get a money for the things that happened, but then just economy, my parents retired, we just did not have as money as as we used to. So I said, I'm going to work so hard and I'm going to buy a car for him. And you know what? I did. That's amazing. I bought a car for my younger brother for his 19th birthday. Because, Took a year. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But that's w- w- why I got a job in a Qatar Airways, because I knew it's a good pay. And I also had a problem with my ears, so I like just couldn't go up and down. So they told me they can ground me for like a way worse job. But I took it because I had a mission to save the money and buy my uh, little brother a car. And I worked there literally till I had enough money for that, plus a little bit more to figure it out what I want to do more with my life, because that's when idea of United States, it's popping up in my head, because I travel to United States in, a, I think, I don't know, 2012, uh, and, and to Chicago. I ended up sleeping three nights in Chicago Air, Airport without knowing that a couple of years later, that's going to be my hometown, basically. Like, that's how I feel about Chicago. But I just wanted to complete that mission there for the money because that was a rough job to do. Middle East, it's quite not the place where I imagine myself spending the rest of my life with. So I really did that just for the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a wonderful experience. And I love that traveling. I told you that I felt like I literally have that drumomania thing, which is like I have to go somewhere or like I can become depressed or it's just meant to me exploring the world and finding new places. But I was getting older, right? I'm already 24 in that point. And I'm like, I have to figure it out what I want to do for the rest of my life because I'm not going to be forever young and I need to start building something now. And that's when idea for the United States start popping up. What have you learned from, well, first of all, let me back up. How many different countries have you been to? Because I mean, I think when people say, oh, I like to travel, you know, they can maybe rattle off five or six different countries that they've been to, but that's just not the case. You really love to travel, right? That is correct. I do I do think that I reached the hundred of countries that I have <laughs> oh visited. Uh, but listen, do you know what that means? There's still hundred something more to go. So, and I literally lived in maybe 10 of them. Wow. Like literally had my own apartment and like worked in them and experienced life or at least been a student. That Because in Mexico, I've studied. I got the scholarship. Then I loved it because the mother thing that was first, like I don't think I was supposed to go from the village to the big city. Like I needed to go maybe to the capital of my own country, right? Podgorica, which is like a little bit bigger city to experience a little bit more of a crowd, of a life like that. And I think that's what was necessary for me. Like when I went to Norway, I was in a really small, I lived in a two towns, but they were really small. And then, oh, I experienced going to France and living with a family as well. Like I had a mom, dad, and a brother and a cat. So that was a cool experience. Then I was so strong being on my own that I felt like, oh, this is something that I can do. And then when I went to Mexico, my scholarship was for only six months, but I loved it so much that I went to like president of the college and I said, what do I need to do 
to get another six months. And he said, well, score more than 95 and you will get it. And it's so hard. In Mexico, it's from zero to 100. So it's so easy. You lose two, three points and you're already already done. (laughs) Exactly. I was like, nothing will stop me from like getting this 95 score on all of my classes. And uh, then, and I was doing theater in Mexico too, but I was not doing real theater. I was doing improvisation, which was blocking me a lot because my Spanish was not perfect. And you have to improvise in a language that you don't speak. So I would often be a TV, a dog, a giraffe. Like just so, non-speaking no, part exactly just so that I can like think of like oh or maybe speaking dog that knows how to say three sentences so it took the different countries but I really really wanted to and I kept going so I stayed two years in Mexico because every semester once you reach that level of 95 or more you can get another six months I ended up staying till I graduated till they gave me a diploma and I ended up getting uh I even forgot now what it's called, but it's like an English would be like a SAT or a TOEFL mm. or basically a certificate that you're that you're le- that you speak Spanish as good as a native, native speaker. So I got that certificate from there, and then maybe open some other doors when I was applying for jobs. I would like with my CV attach that, and people would be really impressed, like, oh, it speaks multiple languages. So that traveling did for me and I just really really enjoyed it and I feel like it helped me shape the person who I am and got some qualifications to later on be able to do good in in United States because I practiced my English in Mexico too because there were so many international other students so I would be speaking English with them that makes sense uh, because I first spoke Spanish before English so I always say English is my third language because it is I, I I learned how to speak English third. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I it works really well for me now. <laughs> well, in addition to literally traveling because of scholastic pursuits, right? You were going to school in Mexico and even in Madrid, even though you didn't like it. So you were pursuing your degrees um, or certificates. You also learned how to speak multiple different languages, which I can attest to. I've I've heard you speak multiple different languages now, and your Spanish is is beautiful. What were you learning about how people in other countries viewed gayness, viewed mm-hmm. gay people, viewed the gay community? Mm-hmm. Well, I knew about the Middle East that it's something that I practiced my entire life. So I was like, I, I'm ready. Like, <laughs> of hiding it, essentially. I'm ready. I can be speaking this voice and be a straight for you this entire podcast, Joanne. That's not what we're going to do. So I knew about that. But other countries, I really had a positive experiences. I mean, there's countries, I don't know if I ever told you, like I had a rock thrown me in Egypt because oh. I didn't want to buy something, not because of the anything. So like there's countries you'll not be safe regardless. So... You just know, I do now my research wherever I'm going. So like in Egypt, we knew you have to hire a local for $10 a day. It's a lot of money for them to go with you. And they they respect it. It was like, well, one of us is making money. (laughs) At least they are very community oriented, which I appreciated. So I just knew ahead of time, like where I can express it Mm -hmm. and how to be safe where I cannot. So I learned how to be safe in the Middle East in Qatar. It was a thing. People got terminated because of it. If they find out and somebody reports you that you are gay, you got invited to the office. Mm -hmm. And they literally reported two of my colleagues for being in a relationship. And 
honestly, all you need to do is deny, right? So one of them went and denied, but another one said, if we need, we'll break up. <laughs> they both get fired. Mm. But anyway, it's like I'm laughing now because I'm in so many situations over it. But at first, it was like so heartbreaking for me, things like that. So it's, I knew how to act there. But also, I got in trouble once with uh, my friend Maria from Croatia because we... I'm very, I love women because those are my friends. So I may hug her in the public and police stopped us and almost arrested us for it. Mm. So it's not just about like, oh, I'm gay, so I'm not safe. Nobody's safe there, mm. <laughs> let me tell you. Mm. So you just have to know where you're going. But the majority of the countries, let's say I spent a lot of time in Mexico and I really enjoyed it. And I was so open to express myself out there, even though people will say like, oh, there's so many homophobes in Mexico. Like I didn't experience it. Like I really experienced beautiful Mexico. It's literally one of my favorite countries. And if it's not for my job, for the for the economy, for the money, because I'm very business, I'm businessman and I'm very driven towards that. If there was no that power and passion in me, I really think I'd be living in Mexico now. Mm. Well, let's move on to that aspect of Nemanja, the businessman. But before we really dive into that, you mentioned that the United States was popping up as a potential mm. place to land, and that's ultimately where you did land. How did you end up in the U.S. after traveling through 99 other countries in the world? <laughs> I felt it could be the safest for me in a term where I could get a husband, I could get married. I could have my own business and I could do all of the things I'm doing right now. But eight years ago, that was just American dream. And I had, on one of my travels, I met the friend doctor from Puerto Rico and I told him, oh, I'm thinking moving to United States. I could be so great that I will be so near to you so I can come to Puerto Rico and visit you. And he said, well, that's great, but I no longer live in Puerto Rico. I'm currently in Chicago and you're more than welcome to come and stay with me. Mm. And I said, wow, that's amazing. Such a generous offer. But again, I was like, is this safe? But like, I knew so much about him. We were friends for so long. Like, I think I'm even friends with his family on Facebook at this point. So I figured maybe that's something what I'm going to do. And if I don't like Chicago and it's like because everybody was telling me it's too cold and I lived in the Middle East and in Mexico in a warm countries for like majority of my adult life. So I figured it might be not destination for me. But I arrived and he welcomed me. He waited for me at the airport on January 20th, 2015. So recently was my eight years anniversary in this country. And I landed at 2 p.m. I think by 7 p.m. I got a job offer. Wow. Like within the five hours. And I was saving money like to come thinking like, oh, till I get a job in about three to six months, because I knew nothing about America, literally nothing. But the second I landed, they told me, wow, restaurant job, it's something you can get easily. It's not going to be a server because they require experience for that. And I was like, well, I served people on the on the board. They're like, well, maybe that's not some something that it's same. And uh, you Maybe you want to look for something else. So this place I found, my, my friend literally showed me, oh, 
there, there's a Craigslist. This is how you look for a job. And I looked for a job and it said a busy downtown restaurant of Chicago. It's looking for a dishwasher. So I said, okay, this is something I can do. Like I'll, I'll go and apply for it. My mom was telling me, how are you going to do that? I was like, I don't care. Like I want this life. And I'm just going to fight for it and I'm going to go. But what I did not know is how you dress up in America for a dishwasher interview. So I went suited up with a tie like I was about to meet President Obama. The man who was interviewing me was so damn confused. What the hell am I doing like suited up with a tie, like looking to be a dishwasher? And then he said to me, you know what? I may have something better for you. And I was like, oh, wow, it's so great. He said, like, you can be a host at the door and welcome people. And I was like, that's an easiest job in the world. But he said, but one thing, you have to come up dressed like that every day. Amazing. And I said, okay, well, that's what I do. <laughs> I was like, I can dress up and like, and not like this. I have 10 combinations of this that I can pull off. So that is how I got my first job. And I was making $9 an hour and I was the happiest person on the world. I just could not believe like that's honestly, when it comes to the week, when it comes to the month, that's the most that I have ever made. Even though I felt like that my money was great in the Qatar Airways because I had apartment paid and like a lot of things were covered for me. I was still making more money as a host in America then you're making some serious salaries out there around the world. And that's what I really love about this country. And that's why I know there are so many things that this country needs to improve on, but I also think it's one of the greatest countries in the world. Still. Still, yes. I would, I would go somewhere else. I'm like one of my professors through a lot of, of my education said, only fool lives where they were born. Like smart people go where it's the best. And that's me. I go where it's the best. And this was not a country I was born at. I chose it. So the fact that I'm living here, it's because I think this is where it's the best for me. You mentioned that when your mother was a little bit concerned that you would be spending your hard-earned degrees as a dishwasher at a restaurant, you know, you can certainly understand my mother would have felt the same thing, although she would have been proud that I was willing to do whatever it took. You said to her, this is the life that I want. Mm -hmm. This is the life that I'm going to fight for. At that time, what was that life? I mean, what were you dreaming in your head of the life you wanted? Right now, I definitely have way more than I could ever imagine. This is not what I was imagining. It's way more. I just imagined the life where like, I could have a job that it's not washing dishes, right? Because I was thinking this is going to be temporary, which is going to get me to do into something that I wanted to do, like a public relations. That's what I was studying. So like a corporate nice job where like I live comfortably, that I can once a year visit a new country and then that I can potentially get married because in many countries it's not even allowed, right? So because I wanted family. I told you, I watched what my parents uh, have and I was thinking that that's what I want for myself. That's the life I was dreaming about. Like a nice, decent job that I can... I did not know I'm going to be a business owner if that's what you're leading to. I, I, I could not dream of that. that cho I didn't choose that. It chose me. So your dream was actually pretty... Tr I mean, like, I don't think people think of having a job a nine to five job yes, and will. having a husband or a wife and, and having a family that for some people 
they take that for granted. Of course, I'm going to get that. But for you, that was actually your dream life. Absolutely. I saw that in American movies and I was like, this is what I want. This is what I want to, you know, kiss my husband nine in the morning and then like come back at five and we can have a dinner and then, you know, we can plan vacation. And I really thought that's what, what my dream, it turns out not to be, but in that moment, that's what it was, right? And so many of things that I was thinking, oh, this is a life that I want and it turned to be different, which is fine. It's okay to change your dreams, right? But that's what I was thinking that that is what I want. But how my history and job that I was, I stayed at that same job for five years till I have become a general manager of that busy downtown restaurant that the ad was saying. Did you wear a suit every day? I probably did. Maybe not suit, but I had the nice t-shirts and I was I was I was dressed up nicely every day and I liked that. And in one point they required me to wear all black and I had full closet of the black clothes. And once I quit that job, I did not open that closet for a year and a half or maybe two. Because like I just don't want to see a black shirt ever again. But actually it's like really one of my favorite colors and I'm using it often now. But it did create a little bit of, you know, resentfulness towards that clothes because I feared it every single day of mm. my life or at least five, six, well, often seven times a week. I came to this country to work, okay? So it was really not a strange for me to be working 30 days without day off. Sometimes, like, I would ask my boss to give me more hours and it was like, when was your last time you had a day off? I was like, I don't know, in March and it's like June. And it was like, no, you cannot be working that much. I was like, well, if I don't work, I'm losing $100. Like, I felt like in this country, every off day that I take, it's $100 less for me. And I just didn't want to do that. Like, I, I wanted to keep going so that I could get closer to those vacations and the things that I imagined that I'll be doing. And then, as I said, I got to be a server, which was way more money. I, like, made in a couple hours $100 and cry my life out, call my mom, could not believe that I made that much money, like one table gave me like $100. So it was just incredible for me. And then learn how to be a bartender. And like, and I'm not like, I never had a beer in my life, but I knew 20 beers that I can tell you everything about. So I was really dedicated to what I was doing. And then a floor manager and then the general manager. And I'm like, what's going on? Is this, is this my career? And I figured out that it is. And I want to do that when I have made friends out of customers. It just felt so good. I knew people are going to that restaurant because of me, not because of the restaurant. They were like, we want when, when do you work next? Well, that's when we're going to be here. They didn't care. They loved the restaurant, but that I was the main reason they wanted to come back. So I felt like, okay, is this like maybe a gift that I have that I was not aware of? And maybe this is something that I could be potentially doing, but I still was not 100% sure because it's just, there's, it's easy to think like, oh, this is something I want to do on my own. And it's a way different story actually pulling it off. And I talked to my boss and I told him like, how did you open a restaurant? How one day I opened my own restaurant? And he told me something I did not understand, but now I so fully understand it. He said, Neiman, you'll know when you're ready. So at a certain point, based upon your interactions with your customers, you got a sense of what it was like to have the beginnings of a community around you. And I think it sounds to me that's what inspired you to start thinking about, well, how do I build my own community, one that's really mine? And that got you thinking about starting your own restaurant. And you hear from your current boss, you'll know when you're ready. 
when did you know that you were ready? Not in that moment. I was like, that's so confusing and I don't understand what you mean. <laughs> that's, I didn't know. I was like, I feel so I'm not ready. But then I, in the meantime, decided to go vegan, right? First vegetarian, then vegan. And the restaurant I was working at was very heavily serving meat, right? And first, maybe I didn't even have a problem with it. But then I started doing a little bit of activism. I don't want to say activism. I was with a sign on the street saying, leave animals alone. But I would say that to my friends, right? Like, oh, it's how is that animal on your plate tasting and things like that. And then my friends were like, don't you see ribs? Don't you serve ribs at the restaurant that your general manager at? I was like, well, that's a valid point. <laughs> <laughs> so I started looking, how can I be, because I'm not ready to open my own, how can I be a general manager of a vegan restaurant? So I Googled and the ad popped up looking for a general manager at the vegan restaurant. And I thought that was my dream job. And I got it because let me tell you something about Neiman. I never interviewed for something I didn't get. <laughs> so I just knew if I score an interview, this is my job. I scored an interview, I got a job, and that job was nothing like I imagined it would be. It was not that comfort zone I had at my other restaurant. It was not that beautiful working environment I had. It was just really quite opposite experience. And I regret immediately leaving Dylan's and my wonderful job that I had for this but I was like, this is something I committed to. And like, I, w I will try to fix this place, right? Because it had so many issues, but it wasn't, it wasn't happening, right? And for one full year of me trying to do something about it and my people above me, the bosses, like shutting me down every my idea, it's not a good idea, everything I say, it's stupid. That is when I'm starting to think I can do this so much better then you are doing it. And that were, that, those are the moments when I'm thinking, I, I, I think I need to open my own restaurant. And it took multiple meetings with, with my bosses where I would just feel like I'm the dumbest person in the world, like which really made me feel like none of my ideas are good. And after one of those where I like, they gave me a write-up, like, and that was the moment when I was like, George, I understand what you meant. I'm ready. I'm literally ready. And I am going to open my own restaurant. I open my laptop and I say, how to write a business plan. <laughs> and I found how to write a business plan. And the first sentence I wrote in my business plan was 100% plant-based restaurant. And, and that was it. I was like, let me go from here. And then I was looking how to find funding. I couldn't find anything about that. But then I started how to open a restaurant without money. <laughs> so that is my story. I promise. I opened the whole business without money. Like I did not have not even full $10,000. I think I had seven, seven something. And I went to speak uh, because I'm, I was spending my money. I was making decent money, but I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who loves to live very comfortable. So like I'm earned this money, I'm going to spend it. So I had some saving, but it was $7,000. So I wanted to meet with somebody who had a bar and ask him, like a little bit smaller restaurant, what I imagine, and ask him, how do I open a restaurant? What do I do? And he tells me, what's your capital? And I said, $7,000. And then he tells me, girl, buy. <laughs> 
<laughs> because he did not want to even waste his time on me. And then I said, well, what if I try this? What if I find the place? And then like talk to the landlord. And that's exactly what I did. I found the landlord and I told him, I can pay you $7,000, give me the space and give me a couple months to make it work. But for that amount of money, you cannot find a great space. The Kill My Name looked nothing like it looks now. It was just very abandoned hair saloon from the 80s. That's what I described it as. We didn't have much equipment, but and I didn't have money, but I had credit cards. So it's technically money, but it's technically not. So it's a very scary thing to do. But I was like, I can purchase some of the equipment with my credit cards. And that's what I was doing. And I had a friend coming in to work physical to help me repair the floors, the bars. And with my credit card, I was paying his phone bill, his internet, his electricity, because I didn't have money to give him. So I literally opened the business with no money. When we opened, we did not have a fryer, but the pot on a stove filled with oil, that was our fryer. And then the whole different story, but the, the exceeded all of my expectations. The first day we sold unreasonable amount of money. I went the next day to Restaurant Depot and bought us a fryer. And now we have a four fryers included dedicated ones for the gluten-free items. But it's just how it went from that moment of like, oh, I have enough to get a license from the city to allow me to open a restaurant. And that's what I made it with my $7,000 and my credit cards. I had enough for the city to say, okay, this is safe. You can open with this. It might not go, as you imagine, and might be extremely slow because you don't have a proper command. I didn't have a screen to read an order. It's like I was take, we had a one screen, so I was taking pictures on my phone of that screen and putting it on expedited expedite station to read from because I couldn't buy the screen that we have right now. So it took time as business was bringing money for me building the business that is today, but I could follow my ideas. Mm. And nobody was telling me you're, well, people were still telling me that I was being stupid. People told me, I don't know if you know about that tweet that on my very first day of a kill my name, somebody wrote how dumb I must be to open a vegan restaurant in an immigrant populated neighborhood. And I felt so bad that Yes, because how dumb it is to provide uh, healthful plant-based meals to a population that probably has been underserved well, in every nutritional capacity. Well, I'm very terrified of everything in that point. So there's people out there thinking that I will fail and like, wow, well, good luck to them. It scared me. I was terrified. But hey, three years later, I can be, I proved you wrong. Well, I think that's the most remarkable aspect of your story. Well, actually, there's so many remarkable aspects to your story, but as it pertains to your entrepreneurship and hearing from George, your boss, at your first job here in the United States, Neiman, you'll know when you're ready. And you knew you were ready when somebody was trying to make you feel your worst, when someone was saying, your ideas are too stupid to even consider, you're not valuable, you're not appreciated, you're not worthy. It was at that moment that you decided, yeah, I'm effing ready to take on this new chapter in my life. And why I find that so extraordinary is that so many people who have probably been told many, many times in their lives, you're stupid, you're not valuable, your ideas are not worthy, they wouldn't 
listen to that inner voice that's telling them, okay, you're ready. You're ready to go for something better. You are valuable. You are smarter than this. You deserve better than this. They'll actually listen to the voice that's telling them all of the horrible things that they don't deserve to try and believe it. So what was it in you? What tool did you have to shut out that criticism? You're literally having people tell you to your face that your ideas are not good. How are you able to fight against that, as well as any surge of self-criticism that you might be harboring inside of yourself to say, no, actually, I'm ready. In my case, I just felt it's something I had in me, right? I trust myself a lot, and I trust my instincts. And when I believe this is such a great idea, and I'm giving it to you to work (laughs) for your business, and you are shutting it down, then I just felt like you're doing this service to yourself. Like you use me, my talents, my creativity, my ca- capability to build your business because it was not doing well. Let me tell you that. That was the, my main issue because I felt bad that business is struggling. And that's also like, oh, I have my salary, but that's not who I am. I want it to be a thriving, successful business. So I'm doing, I'm showing you how to bring it to that point, but you're shutting it down. And then I say, well, I can do this for myself. If you don't let me to make your business thrive, I'm going to make my business thriving. Did you ever worry at any point that you would do this Especially with such and fail. Like, how did you, but how did you, so how did you cope with that fear and, you know, surge ahead, notwithstanding? Listen, of the fear, that fear was pushing me to do it. When I gave my $7,000 that I have and I maxed out uh, my credit cards, I'm like, I have no option of failing in this now because I knew I have to make it work because I have nowhere to go back. Do you think it would have been different if you had $300,000? I don't know. Maybe probably. Probably. I would probably feel so safe and I probably would not be there six months every single day of my life for open to close. Yeah, it would be very different. So I you had this hunger and this need. And a fear mm-hmm. because I have nothing else. Like, and I think and that's what I say to people. You sometimes have to quit that job that is giving you a safety and like they're wait, waiting to make it so that they can quit a job. I currently have a friend who is working full-time job and working on their own business and asked me for advice. And I said, well, you're not going to like this advice, but quit that damn job because then the fear will push you. I have to make this work. And I absolutely agree that if I had way more money and way more, I didn't have employees and I have money to pay them, right? I don't think it would work as well as it's working right now because I feel like me being so pressured to give so much of myself into that business gave the community, gave the love, gave the support because I was there. And I think my community, my neighbors have noticed how much I work for it, how much I loved it, and how important it was for me. And all of that would not happen if I was some rich dude with money who wanted to open a restaurant. It wouldn't be what it is. Mm. One of the things that I talk a lot about here on this podcast, as well as just about everywhere else that I am on the internet, is how important it is to get comfortable with failure. I have said before, it's okay to fail. It's not okay to quit. And I think that's really important. And I know that 
Kill My Name Chicago is rocking it. I mean, you guys are one of now, period, one of the best restaurants in Chicago. You're winning every award. I feel like every time I talk to you, you're like, oh, we won another award. <laughs> um, and it's just doing amazing. And of course, as one of its earliest patrons, <laughs> I'm very proud of my very minuscule contribution to making it, you know, the Kill My Name that we love and know. But you also recently tried to open a Kill My Name in LA and mm-hmm. that did not go according to plan. Exactly. How has it been dealing with knowing that you had this vision for your second Kill My Name and it didn't materialize in the way that you wanted? And it's definitely a lot to accept, but it's just part of what it is. Let me tell you, that's not a first failure I ever experienced, right? So I just knew how to move, how to move forward. But also what it was huge help for me there, and that's why I didn't struggle so much, because I had support in that, right? I had an amazing business partner who hold, held my hand through the entire time and told me, honey, I'll be okay. Like that's literally, a, honey, it'll be okay. Literally, like so. I can hear uh, her voice, <laughs> and that and that, you, that voice is so comforting that you are like, I just so feel so safe. So let me tell you, as extreme and a big failure as it was, it felt just such an as an ease because I was lucky to have someone who told me that the things will be okay, and they are. And that it's absolutely okay. And I'm moving forward. And I figure it out. That's something I try. It didn't work. You know, I faced uh, a wall that we could not go through because wall was not ours to go through. Mm. So let me try to figure it out something else, right? And now I'm completely shifting. And that's not only that that failure helped me like, oh, accept the failures, but it also gave me incredible lessons. Like it was so much for me to know, to, as I told you, changing the dreams, right? Like it literally changed my whole dream and what I want to do in the future. I was thinking when the people were reaching out to me, like, can we own the Kill My Name in Michigan? I was like, no, because I want to own the Kill My Name in every state. That's not something I longer want because I figured it is really hard for me to be in two places across the country and like watch them 24-7. And it's just really not something that I now want to do. And I think I've learned so much from that failure. And and there are so many other things that I failed at, but I really think you need to fail in order to succeed. I love that. I think sometimes failure teaches us that this castle in the sky that we have, you know, we knock on the door, we open it, and we think it's going to be resplendent and majestic and beautiful inside. And we walk inside of our castle in the sky and we say, actually, it's kind of crappy in here. I'm not really digging this space. And maybe this isn't the castle in the sky for me that I need right now. And I need to go somewhere else. And I think that's so important is not getting too precious with our dreams. Sometimes our dreams are crappy. And they, I agree. <laughs> like, I agree. <laughs> yeah. And they don't deserve us and they don't deserve our effort. They don't deserve our time. They don't deserve our love and our passion. And it takes failing to recognize that, yeah, well, part of it was that your dream was sort of not worth it mm-hmm. in the first place. And it's okay to let go of it and find something that is worthy of our time and our passion. It is so rewarding to see what you've done with Kill My Name, its impact to, of course, the vegan community and vegan activism. It is a form of activism in your own way. And I think that's really beautiful. I wanted to shift gears back to something that I think is really important to hear more about at this point in your life. That's you met 
the love of your life, your husband. Oh, I was thinking you're talking about my dog. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Kale is a different love of your life, uh-huh. I know, but I definitely want to talk about Julian, that's your husband. Correct. And yes. when did you guys meet? I met Julian, well, in this May, we will celebrate six years it's of incredible. our relationship. He's from Venezuela, and I'm from Montenegro, and we met in Chicago. So I'm sometimes thinking, what on the world that the universe needed to happen for me from another part of the world to come here and for him to also arrive to the same city at the same time and for us to find each other and just do things together because we were first just kind of friends. We're like biking together, going to the gym together. And then we were just like, we want to be together 24-7. And then Julian had the original plan to go back to Venezuela six months later. But then it was like, oh, so I don't want another, because I had relationships like that. I had the uh, boyfriend, Philip, who I had for two or three years, and the long distance separated us. And we are we're wonderful friends now. But that's what happened to me. And I just really did not want that, uh, that to happen with me and Julian, because I was like, I'm not going through this again. I'm not letting you go. So I was like, stay. I asked him, and he said, but how do I stay? Like, I have this place for six months, and I have nowhere to move in with me. (laughs) So six months later of our relationship, Julian and I started living together. And yeah, it's marriage can be hard. You know, it's just, it's something I've never experienced. Gay or straight, marriage can be hard. Exactly. Well, we all share. (laughs) But yeah, it, it taught me so much. And like, it's also great lessons. And I have to say, there was moments where my husband believed more in me than I believed in myself. And I think, oh, that was so important for me too. Right? Because I maybe in that sense that I told you the fear was pushing me, but also maybe his believe that I can do it because he was like, you're the most capable person I know. There's nothing that you can't do. So that's what I absolutely adore about my marriage and like wouldn't change it for anything because like we really are there for each other because like my husband needs kindness and support in so many things because he doesn't like being on his own. He doesn't like going to the doctor's appointment alone. Like he wants me to be there and he has me there and I'm there for him. But I also need that like, oh, you got this with a with, with a knees. I was like, I cannot disappoint him now. He believes in me so much. So I think that is beautiful part of 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 my marriage. And you know, my husband, he's just such a wonderful human being, and he is not as as involved in in my business, but with with his heart and with support, it's just it makes a huge difference. And when I do, and when when that uh, failure happened with an with an LA location, he was also there for me. And he was saying, "Oh, it's fine. You're gonna do something else, and it's gonna be okay." And it's important to know also in those failures that I didn't mention that it does get better, right? When you feel like everything, it's this horrible disaster and I'm just not doing so great, it is important to understand that it will get better. And my husband was also the voice who was telling me like, oh, you're so capable. You can make things happen. Mm-hmm. Like, I believe like that you can do anything. So when I build him surprises and something that I want to do, he was like, well, if Lady Gaga now walks into the room, I wouldn't be surprised because he was like, you can make everything happen. So he's funny in that sentence, but he really has a lot of faith in me, a lot. And it's just what, it's really helpful for me. So yeah, we we are now at six years. So it's more like I feel 
a calm, nice, mature relationship. And I love it. We are in those beautiful seas that are not really wavy, but, you know, kind of going up and down. And I and I just like it. And I, I have to mention, I wanted to have kids. I really did. But one day we have decided to adopt a dog. Listen, that dog is my child. <laughs> no one on this world can convince me that he is not. And and that's what I want. And I and I'm like really planning around him so much. My dog has more friends than I do. More friends than probably anybody <laughs> does. And my dog has meetings with them. So I will literally cancel my, not cancel, but move. My business meeting will be like, I'm so sorry, 3 p.m. will not work for me because my dog <laughs> has a play date. <laughs> literally has a meeting at a park. <laughs> so I'm just building so much ar- around him and having Julian co- cooperating with me. It's just a beautiful experience that I feel fulfilled as a parent. And I no longer, I don't know if that will change. It's okay to, to change how you feel. But I just really feel my family is complete now. And, and, and that's some of the dreams that I had back then when I was imagining, oh, I want to have a family. But it's like, it's always three of us. When we fell a trip, we, we planned it around him. And it's just, it absolutely feels like family. And whoever does not agree with me, well, I don't care. That's, that's absolutely, I'm, I'm very certain about this. So <laughs> I don't care how you feel, if that's a child or not. Is it a family or it's not? I just love him so much. Mm. Well, I did not know love like that before. I love my family. I love my mom and dad. I love my husband. But I never knew love like that before I had him in my arms for a couple of weeks. <laughs> that's how long it took to know that I'll never, ever be able to live without him again. So mm. he's going to live with me till we are both 120. <laughs> that's the plan. That's the plan. So let's go back to the dream you had when you were a little boy in Montenegro watching your father madly in love with your mother and having that family. And you talked about how you've created that here in the United States. You don't care if people disagree with you about whether or not that's a complete family, but to you, that is a family. I want to ask you, I'm assuming your parents know about your husband? Yes, they do. But let me tell you something. I don't know if I ever shared this with you, but Julian and I married without my parents knowing. So they still did not know. And I felt like so safe and so happy with Julian that I think that was the breaking point where I decided this is a moment where we have to go through that little bit of the pain that I was postponing for so long, my entire life, basically, because I was so happy that I told no matter how painful it will be, my mom will be so happy to see how I live and how I feel. And I gave them an option. I wanted my parents to be in my life. I wanted them to share those happy moments with me, right? Because before that, I don't think anything I had before was worth it to like go through that a little bit of a pain that we went through. But I think this so was. And that was the moment when I invited them to come to the United States. And I said, mom and dad, I just really, we were FaceTiming face to face. There was no writing a letter as like, I know people would ask me, oh, did you write him a letter? I was like, no, we 
We FaceTime, I invited them to come to Chicago. They knew I lived with Julian, who they believe it was a roommate, mm. right? So I told them, I want you to come over here and I want you to stay with us. But there is something that you need to know. One, Julian is not a roommate. Two, it's not that only it's not just a roommate, that it's a boyfriend, but it's actually a husband. Wow. And there's a little bit of a silence and I just knew my mom would start crying and stuff. So I said, mom, should we hang up now so you finish your crying part and then we can talk later? Because I was upset in that moment. But mom, my mom said, no, I'm, I'm not going to cry. It, it is okay. I, on some level, knew. And then I told them, take your time. You don't have to give me an answer now. But if you want to come, you're going to have to treat my husband as you treat the wives. My both brothers are married. As you treat those wives of my brothers, you're going to have to treat Julian that way. And if you're not ready to give him that treatment, then I don't want you here. And I'm sorry. And I love you more than anything in my life. But if you don't, if you're not okay with this, I don't want you to come. And I told them, I don't want an answer right away because you can react impulsively and tell me that it's something that it's not. So I want you to think about it. And I said, let's finish this conversation and then continue whenever you're ready. And then my mom called me next day, just our regular chats as we regularly speak and stuff. And then just told me, oh, let me know around what dates are you planning to buy our tickets. And let me tell you something right now. It's not secret at all in our family. My mom and dad love Julian more than they love, not wives of my brothers, but my brothers. Like... My mom and dad are obsessed with Julian. Yeah. Like, they think he's so funny. And how they communicate is just the most hilarious thing. They use Google Translate. And, like, my parents are using very broken and little English that they know. But it's so hilarious. And their interactions are so precious. We take trips together. My mom and dad want to make sure that Julian is going on a trip because they want to be spending time with him. We took a trip where Julian family met my family. We actually took two trips like that it's a lot but it was a lot of fun and our families are actually getting along but Julian and my mom are talking daily they're using whatsapp and translating every single message and sometimes the translations it's so off and we are laughing about it but they're really connected and I think also that's what it took for my mom to see that what I was talking about, mm -hmm. how happy I was. Because they came to, to America. We were in Chicago. We went to New York, L.A., Miami, Las Vegas. I took them everywhere. We just traveled for a month. And then Julian was asked with the entire time. And then when my mom went back to Montenegro and stayed for a couple of days over, and she called me and told me, I'm so happy that I came to America and I'm so happy that I saw your life and who you live with. I wouldn't change it for anything in the world because what I have seen made my heart bigger than America. Oh, that is so beautiful. I don't know that I could end it any better than that, but I do have to ask, I mean, when I hear you talk about that conversation, that FaceTime you had with your mom and your dad, where you were essentially willing to sacrifice a big chunk of your relationship with the two people in your life that you arguably loved more than anybody prior to Julian, 
especially your mother. I know that kind of incredible relationship you've always had with her and how much you've protected her. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds like you spent almost your entire life protecting your mother out of love for her. You were willing to sacrifice that in order to stand in your truth and grab a hold of this joy that you discovered here in the U.S., getting married, finding Julian, and all of those things. And the thing is, it could have gone really badly. Mm -hmm. They could have said, yeah, you're right. We're not going to come to the U.S. Mm -hmm. We can't get behind you. We can't support this. We really think that you need to change. You need to get a divorce. You need to come back home. All of those things that we've heard about, that was very much a potential that was on the table for you, and yet you were still willing to do this. What do you have to say to a young person right now whether it is because they need to come out to their family, to their loved ones, or it's some other part of who they are that they haven't been able to be comfortable with because their family can't get behind it. And now is that time where they need to throw everything out on the table and take a chance. What do you have to say to them to help them know that this is the answer? Mm -hmm. I was ready in that moment for that to happen, right? And you just have to make sure that that's the risk you are ready to take and that you can handle. And I don't think I was ready or able to handle it before I had Julian, because mm -hmm. I knew if they hang up on me at that moment, then I'm just going to go and cry with my husband and he's going to hug me and I'm going to be okay. And that's it. And if I, and I know many people don't have that and it's rough. But again, I cannot give advice on this, but what I would say is, Remember I told you when my boss said to me, you will know when you are ready. And I think that's a perfect advice that anybody can give you with coming out. It's not something to be forced. Like, I don't want anybody to say like, oh, it's like, go ahead. You will be fine. There's no reason for you to fear. It's that person is going through something and it's just up to them. It's not up to me to be outing somebody. And I know that happened to some people that other person decided to be like, well, I'm going to say to your sister or to your friend, that's mm -hmm. not cool. Like that should be our decision, right? So I cannot be giving advice to people say, do it because it's up to them. And if I could say anything, it's that you will know when you are ready because I knew and I knew that I'm ready to take that risk, right? Some people are not. And I was okay with that risk because in that point, I was, I was being pissed. Like, I was being mad. I told you in that point, like, when I called her, I said, do you want a moment to hang up so you finish your crying? Because, like, I had no empathy for her tears in that point. I'm sorry. But that's how I felt. Because I felt like I had had it enough. And, and I've done all of this for you for so many years. But, like, now it's your time to do this for me. And I was lucky that I had the outcome that I wanted. But if I didn't get it, I would still be fine. It still would be very sad and devastating, but I would be okay with it. I would make my peace with it, right? There's there's so many things that we are hurting for, but we just learn how to live with it, mm. right? So I think I, I would be okay. It would be sad, but I was ready for it. So if anywhere out there that it's listening this, that it's struggling with the same problem is, I would just say, you'll know when you're ready. I love that. I really love that so much. I have to ask, what 
where are you going from here? What's next for Nemanja? What's in your future? I'm actually very excited for the things that I want to do. I discovered and learned from one of my failures is that I don't want to be opening more restaurants myself, but I do want to franchise Kale My Name, meaning I want to allow other people to own, run, and operate Kale My Name. And if you're interested in that, franchising at KaleMyName.com is an email. <laughs> then you need to reach out Spread to me. Spread the vegan love. Uh, yeah. That's pretty much my goal for, and I'm just very excited to be working more on uh, all things Nemanja, right? Or all things Neem. And I want to create more fun uh, things such as being on a podcast <laughs> or, you know, doing uh, some YouTube uh, shows and fun like that. I just really, this is a year where I want to work on myself and I want to do more things Neiman. So more things Neiman coming in 2020 through a lot of fun things. I'm very passionate about veganism and I'm going to try to focus on that and have a lot of fun because I think I deserved it. That's amazing. And where can people find you? People can find me on Instagram. I do run two accounts. One is Kill My Name. It's just at Kill My Name or it is my personal account, which is my name, Nemanja Goldbovich. You can just find me there. You can find me on YouTube. Kill my name, Nemanja Goldbovich. On all other uh, platforms or, you know, just visit my website, killmyname.com. It's amazing. Well, there you have it, everyone. Find Nemanja or Kill My Name or some other iteration at yes. some point in the future. Thank you so much for stopping by my kitchen today. Thank you. I'm a huge fan of all things Joanne and of your <laughs> podcast. And it was really insane pleasure and like I just cannot express how grateful am I for you having me on your podcast I loved it and enjoyed every minute of it and would do it all over okay let's do it again just kidding (laughs) (laughs) all right thank you thank you not gonna lie I got pretty teary-eyed during uh parts of that chat with Neiman can you imagine not being able to tell your own parents, people you love so much about the happiest thing that has ever happened to you, or being made to feel like your ideas, your energy, and hard work aren't ever going to be good enough. Maybe you can. Either way, I'm so glad that Neiman was finally able to answer the question, are you ready, with a resounding yes in both circumstances. Is there something preventing you from standing in your truth? Are there too many people around you who don't believe in you, who are more inclined to keep you where you are, who may even feel threatened by your desire to press ahead because they don't want to be left behind? If so, what do you think it'll take before you can finally say, I know I'm ready? And with that, we're on to parting thoughts. Dear Colette, please find attached to spreadsheet I would like to go over during our next session. If you could review it prior to then, I think it would make our time more productive. Thanks very much, Joanne. That was an email I sent to my therapist just a couple days before our scheduled session. This was many, many years ago. The spreadsheet contained a detailed timeline and plan for exiting my first marriage. The truth was, I wasn't ready to actually move forward with any concrete steps in that direction, but I was ready to pretend that I was. 
The timeline included multiple milestones. Meet with divorce lawyer, look for an apartment, draft up divorce papers, discuss with husband, hire movers, move out. Somehow, typing these things in Calibri font in an Excel spreadsheet, I don't know, made them smaller, more manageable, less shattering. If I followed the spreadsheet, I would be moved into my new apartment in one year. It was ambitious in every way, logistically, physically, legally, and of course, emotionally. But there was no one but me to hold myself accountable to this crazy timeline, I thought. When running a marathon, I always tell myself around mile 23, maybe a little earlier, if you run to the next water station, you can walk for a quarter mile, I promise. I know with about 99% certainty that I will do no such thing. But in that moment, I tell myself what I need to in order to grind out another mile. Sometimes the biggest barrier to moving forward isn't how the world views us, but how we view ourselves. If only my brain could believe just how strong and capable my legs are, I wouldn't have to use my bag of tricks to get through the finish line. It's okay if you're not ready today. I wasn't ready the day I walked into Colette's office with a printout copy of Divorce XLS. But it's okay to maybe pretend that you are. Start doing some of the things that a person who is ready might do. In the end, I ran through every milestone and the ultimate finish line in that spreadsheet six months ahead of schedule. And it taught me something I can never unlearn. I'm a lot tougher than I sometimes realize. Thanks everyone for joining me for another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please subscribe if you haven't already and share this episode with your friends, your family, your colleagues on social media, or with anyone else you think might be inspired by the story we talked about today. As with all the podcast episodes, make sure to sign up for the newsletter for additional goodies, recipes, giveaways, and photographs that accompany this episode. Otherwise, until next week, I hope you have a beautiful and wonderful day. Thank you.